The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of April 22nd, 2019. On this week's show, Slate's Nick Green will join us to talk about NBA playoff beef. We've got Ben Simmons versus Jared Dudley. Kevin Durant versus Patrick Beverly, and everyone's favorite, Russell Westbrook versus Earth. ESPN's Greg Wyshynski will also be here to discuss the bloodbath in the NHL playoffs, both the metaphorical one and the one that you get when Alex Ovechkin punches a guy. Finally, Sports Illustrated writer and two-time Jeopardy champ Jack Dickey will help us assess the man, the machine, the moneymaker, James Holtzauer who's smashing game show records at a furious pace. Here with me in our Washington, D.C. studio is my co-host, Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. You've never tried to go on Jeopardy, right? Have not. Uh, oh, no, I think maybe I did try to get on the high school tournament, the teen tournament, and a, a girl from my high school got on. Yeah. Not me. I tried to get on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. I never got past the telephone dial-in phase. Could they tell that you were just annoying on, on television? What, is that what they screen for? That is what they screen for. Yeah. Or trivia knowledge, one or, one or the other. One or the other. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Josh, you have a book coming out. Yes. Still. It, uh, still it's a called, month away. It's called The Queen. Thank you. We Interestingly, st- let's we talk about- We still haven't come over, overcome the awkwardness of my- introducing the show and then you having to talk about my book. We'll figure it out. We've got a few more shows to go. I could just do the introduction and that way it would seamlessly go into me plugging the book. I like that. I like that. Yeah. Maybe next yeah. week we'll try yeah. it. The cover does not have the subtitle on the book. This is interesting. Yeah. For people who like book covers. <laughs> not interesting for people who don't like book covers. Yeah. I like the, I, I, I endorse. So Josh or his marketing people or book designers, maybe you could tell us this would be a great story for when you go on tour. Yeah. Decided to go with like a hunk of text on the cover. Yeah, that's what it's called, a text hunk. It's called a text hunk. I think that's yeah. the technical term rather yeah. than the subtitle. But the subtitle is on the title page of the book. It's true. Yeah. I mean, I think that pretty much covers it. <laughs> I don't know if there's that much more of an Was that a strategic decision? All right. So here's the uh, real explanation for the uh, text hunk, text chunk. It's actually called the text crawl in the parlance of uh, publishing. So um, what it says is, in the 1970s, Linda Taylor became a fur-wearing Cadillac-driving symbol of the undeserving poor, but the original welfare queen was demonized for the least of her crimes. Taylor was a con artist, a kidnapper, maybe even a murderer. This is the never-before-told story of a singular American character, lost in the rush to create a vicious stereotype that accomplishes two things number one it's kind of enticing but i think you need to change your your intonation when you say maybe even a murderer <laughs> i'll do that the next time it's enticing but also it explains a book where the um topic is a little bit unclear when you just look at like the cover the queen picture of this woman it uh is uh, a draw and it's also a little bit of a backstory I like it, it helps uh, move some move some copies. I like it. I Thank like you. It. Thank Subtitles you. Subtitles are bullshit and very often do not convey. The, oh, this conveys the the substance, of the, but it's not the subtitle. The subtitle 
You have one. It's on the title page. The subtitle kind of getting a little bit short shrifted, but I think that's okay in this, in this instance. I like to think of it more as the crawl getting elevated than the, the subtitle getting shrifted. Here's to the crawl. Here's to the crawl. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The first round of the NBA playoffs is proceeding as the first round of the NBA playoffs typically does with no upsets really in the offing i guess nuggets and spurs is close that one could go either way but otherwise got your uh warriors there's a little blip but they're up three to one on the clippers the east not really much uh drama going on there the bucks are rampaging through the pistons celtics already beat the pacers etc so what do we have in the nba playoffs when we don't have on-court drama stefan we have psychodrama beef we have beeves we have so much, so much beef going on, and here to uh, assess the gradations of these beefs is uh, Slate's sports correspondent Nick Green. Welcome, Nick. Hi, guys. How's it going? And Nick uh, just got a uh, deal to write a book about basketball. So, so he's we even could... more of an authority than he was the last than the last time he was on the, the show. The transcript of this conversation is going directly into the book. So don't don't stammer at all, Nick. Easiest way to do it. <laughs> all right, let's start with uh Kevin Durant and Patrick Beverly, which is kind of a unusual beef in that it seems grounded based on mutual respect. Which is less fun, but seem it's like organic beef. I don't know. This is like impossible burger. It's not really <laughs> beef, but we can pretend. So this was a more interesting beef uh, in the first two games of the series. The Clippers came back from 31 down in game two, which was bizarre uh, and unexpected. The The Warriors have gotten things back on common and familiar ground by winning the next two games, but let's listen to what Durant had to say after game two. Um, it's a little bit hard to hear in the beginning, but he describes Patrick Beverly as a pest. When I get the ball in my spots, you know, I got a pest, Patrick Beverly, who's up underneath me. Well, I could definitely shoot over top and score every time if it's a one-on-one situation. But we got a guy that's dropping and helping, and then we got another guy that's just sitting on me waiting, waiting for me to dribble the basketball. If I put the basketball on the floor, I can, you know, I could probably make 43% of my shots if I shoot them like that. But that's not really going to do nothing for us at uh, with the outcome of the game, you know, because we got a nice flow. Everybody touching the rock, everybody shooting and scoring. So I'm not going to I'm not going to get in the way of the game because, you know, I want to have a little back and forth with Patrick Beverly. I'm Kevin Durant. <laughs> Wait, you cut it off before he said, you know who I am. I wanted to let you do that part. Thank you. What is, what is the best part of that? monologue nick is that the specificity of 43 percent yeah and i i honestly think that's probably correct um <laughs> and although the next game he basically just did that you know shot over beverly when he had the ball and i think he uh went 
far higher than 43%. So maybe he was kind of underselling his ability. Could it be some gamemanship there? But um, yeah, it's clearly someone who sees the game in a way that um, is remarkably clear and slow for him. Uh, whereas Beverly uh, tries, he might is, you know try to speed that up and make things muddied and, and confusing for Durant. But that's obviously not happening and didn't happen, which is kind of why it's not that great of a beef, maybe. See, I would disagree. I think it's actually entertaining beef because of it's more like it's like a little Abbott and Costello beef because the size disparity between these two guys is so weird. You know, Beverly is guarding someone that's what, seven, eight inches taller than he is? Oh, more than that. More than that? Durant's like seven feet and Beverly's, Beverly's like six, six one or something. Six one, yeah. He's six one? Oh, I thought he was like six three. So that and he's also getting low anyway. too. And he's getting low and he's like poking him and he's exaggerating, he's mimicking Durant, flopping. I mean, this is fun beef because he's down around his ankles. It's like a little brother, big brother kind of beef, and I enjoy that. Um, And Durant, being Durant, responds to that. Um, There's another clip, I think it was from the same interview, um, where he said, you know, when you put that out there on the court against me, then the refs are going to give him a little bit more so when he runs up on me like a pit bull, grabbing me, holding me, I don't mind it. That's how he makes his money. That's how he feeds his family. And it should be noted, though, that the terms pest and pit bull um, really can't be considered insults because Doc Rivers, the Clippers head coach, uh, calls his own team cockroaches uh, in a you know kind of complimentary way. So pest and pit bull are kind of upgrades from cockroach, I would mm-hmm. say. And it's really disingenuous of Durant to say that no big deal. I mean, Durant got, you know, teed up. Well, they both got ejected got from ejected game two. From we game sh- two. we should have yeah. mentioned there has been some uh, testy moments. But the thing that I find that that is interesting to me is why would there be mutual respect here when there isn't in other cases? We'll get to the other cases mm. in a second. But Beverly is a- annoying. I think Beverly intends to be annoying. He wouldn't be surprised. I, I think it's success for him to be considered annoying. He injured Russell Westbrook's knee that time by when Westbrook was just going to call a timeout. He just ran him over. Um, He's somebody who is not beloved by certain other players in the league. Do you think, I mean, I I think honestly, Nick, it's what Durant says at the end of that clip that we played. He's Kevin Durant and he, I think, kind of enjoys this particular challenge or feels like he is somebody who's always so much inside his own head. I think within the playoffs, maybe he feels like he needs this or wants this. And you can kind of see him smiling sometimes when Beverly is like, you know, biting his ankles. Yeah, it's a good tune up for sure. Um, I think it's probably, you know, good that they he's had a tough opponent so he can't sleepwalk through the first round as, you know, the Warriors have been able to do for the past couple of years. One thing that must be noted is that um Beverly's not a superstar, but he made a all you know, NBA all defensive team a couple of years ago. He's a really tough dude. Um there was a recent poll of NBA players where they asked a bunch of questions and one of them was who would you least like to fight? Um and Beverly was in the top 5 and everyone else was considerably larger than 6 foot 1. I think, I think number James 1 James Johnson was, is number 1, right? Cuz he knows like karate. A, yeah, he's a seasoned MMA fighter. Um <laughs> and, and he's also a large large person. Um but yeah, Beverly the fact is he's a tough dude and I think the respect isn't begrudging. It's uh 
maybe partly out of knowing that this is a guy that can uh, chop at your knees and uh, make you pretty hurt if he wants to. So I think it's kind of it's a good battle. It's more even than it might seem just by the sight gag of it. There is certainly a tradition of guys like this being viewed with contempt by their peers. Mm-hmm. I mean, the number one example of that recently was Matthew Dellavedova, who yes. in the finals that year was just injuring everyone right, on because the Warriors. The line between being a pest and being dangerous is you know, it's it's pretty thin. Right. I don't think and I don't think Beverly does anything dangerous. I mean the Westbrook example you gave, that was a while ago, um, like four, <laughs> five, six years ago, um, and he basically just, a lifetime ago. It was a he was a different yeah, guy. Exactly. It, uh, yeah, a lot of laws well, happened since then. Let's move on to Ben Simmons and Jared Dudley, which is a higher Ugh. grade, a higher grade of beef, and there seems <laughs> to be some genuine dislike uh, and distaste there. Um, this started with Dudley. After game two, keep in mind that Dudley did not play in this game because he was injured. Just Jared Dudley's willingness to insert himself into into this beef with a, with real no standing, no admirable. beef standing is quite admirable. So after game two, which Dudley did not play, and he said Ben Simmons is a great player in transition. And once you get him into half court, he's average. Simmons's response was, that's coming from Jared Dudley. Come on. I love how in all of these beefs, just saying the person's name is uh, it's part of the beef. It's part of the beef. Yeah. So what else, what else has happened here, Nick? What are your favorite parts of Dudley Simmons beef? Yeah. So I think um, this one, Dudley, Dudley's quote about him not being, you know, being average in the half court um, is kind of true. Uh, he's certainly better in transition than a half court. And it's one of those things that the quote itself was so tasty of a soundbite that it kept getting tweeted and tweeted and retweeted. And obviously Simmons got asked about it. So it was something that was the definition of innocuous. It was a guy who wasn't even playing saying something kind of almost in passing. Oh, come on. Got, well, <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the fact It's that totally was, innocuous for a guy who's, the fact that he wasn't even playing actually makes it less innocuous, but keep going, keep going. Well, I think that Simmons, <clears throat> the way he reacted, kind of seemed like, except for, so the next game, Dudley actually did play, and he played terribly. He didn't score a single point. He airballed a three, um, and Simmons, you know, was caught, you know, on tape or was on the on the court at the time, raising his arms sort of in mock celebration when he airballed the three. It was kind of fun and friendly, not a big deal, um, and seemed to be like a return to the status quo, wherein Ben Simmons is an all-star and Jared Dudley is Jared Dudley. Um but the other game, the last game, game four, right. Dudley playing very well, uh, kind of really kind of relishing his role as a pest, but not in the Beverly way, in the sort of talking trash, getting in people's faces. He made a, uh, he made a three and did the same Simmons celebration that he did when he airballed the three. And it was actually turning to something really interesting. And then uh, Dudley kind of got a little ahead of his skis there and uh, got himself ejected. And that kind of turned the game. In, but he also in, got Jimmy Butler but, ejected. Well, this is my point. Fair this trade. is like beef yes. similar to the Kevin Durant, Patrick Beverly. There was on-court consequences for the beef. I mean, the Beverly Durant was mostly on-court and it was mostly involved watching Patrick Beverly look like, again, your little brother. This beef spilled over into sort of serious NBA beef. Jared Dudley had been fouled by Joel Embiid, who, we're going to get to this, inserts himself into the beef, which is, makes this beef even better. Um, and then Dudley pushes Embiid. Then they spill off of the court. 
and like into the first row of the stands, which is a big no-no in the NBA, obviously. And Dudley effectively gets Jimmy Butler ejected from the game. You well, know, so just as Beverly took out Durant, here we have a star for one team getting kicked out when the pest takes action. The tussle, in my opinion, actually kind tussle, of tussle is uh, a good word. Yeah. Yes, the the brouhaha, the Donnybrook, um, sort of exemplified why the Simmons Dudley beef isn't maybe a full beef in the fact that Dudley was very much trying to get under Embiid's skin. Butler took offense. Butler stormed over. Simmons and Dudley, the two you know protagonists of this feud of this semi beef, um, actually found themselves sort of intertwined and in a position that if it were a real kind of vicious beef, you know, could actually be fighting. But they were kind of sort of cradled and sort of just kind of floated into the stands with each other. There's no real animosity between them. Uh, they got back up. Everyone is separated. So the two sort of main characters were confronted face to face. If this were a, uh, a fantasy movie, this would be the sort of climactic battle. Uh, and nothing happened. Everything else was kind of uh, tertiary beef. Uh, so the Simmons-Dudley beef might actually be more of the kind of uh, kind of wrestling-style stage antics than anything real uh, when it comes to animosity. But so the thing about the Sixers-Net series is it's a good, close, tightly contested, intense series. And so, you know, with Beverly and Durant, there's some serious on-court competition there, but we know who's going to win. There doesn't seem to be any serious issues between the teams, although the Clippers and the Warriors have had their issues in the past. But this time around, it just seems like fairly standard issue stuff. But Sixers and Nets, like the Nets are young and scrappy. and Dudley's the, not young. He's not young. But the Sixers <laughs> are the favorite in the series, but, you know, they're – Embiid's been hurt and the, you know, before the Sixers won in game four, the, you know, victory in the series was kind of in the balance. And it just seemed like in that context, the Dudley thing was just weird. I don't know if it was intentional because Dudley is older. He's a very smart guy. I don't know Mm -hmm. if it was like, you know, Kenny Atkinson, the coach was like telling him to do this stuff to try to get in the Sixers heads or if he's just freelancing here because he thinks it'll help the team. It's just the combination of the beef seeing so seeming so like out of nowhere and pointless and the series being so closely contested and physical and consequential. It's just been a little bit hard to parse. For really? Me. I see. I think that, but that's where beef comes from. You know, it's one offhand dismissive remark by one supremely talented athlete Toward another supreme, but that's my question: is, is it offhand? Because it seems like Dudley kind of knows like what kayfabe? he's doing. I mean, do you think this is? No, no. I think that Dudley has been doing this intentionally. Yeah, to try possibly. to stir stuff up. Well, and then he did manage to not only drag Ben Simmons into this, but drag Joel Embiid into it. Embiid, after the the fight game on Sunday, called Dudley a nobody. And they both, both Embiid and who was on the stand with him, it was Butler on the, at the news conference. They kind of sort of snickered and rolled their eyes about Dudley. All right. So let's end with um, Russell Westbrook versus the world. Um, we're going to talk about Westbrook and his dealings with the, the media in our bonus segment. But um, let's also talk about Russell Westbrook versus the Blazers and Damian Lillard 
in particular. Um, I hadn't been paying super duper close attention to the series, but I watched um, game four on Sunday. And the thing that was so odd for me, Nick, is I'm just used to seeing Westbrook going a million miles per hour all the time for good or for ill. It's been a little bit more for ill this season for the Thunder. But in the second half of this game, he just didn't do anything. He was just kind of standing around and Dennis Schroeder was initiating the offense. They were, you know, getting the ball to Paul George, understandably. And Damian Lillard is just like so such far and away the best player in this series and on the court. It just seemed Mm -hmm. weird to me to see Westbrook so deferential and maybe I'm psychoanalyzing too much, but he just seemed kind of defeated. Yeah, he was 0 for 7 in the second half, scored one point, um, and they were playing well in the first half. Uh, They had Lillard in check for most of the first half until the very end of it. Yeah, Westbrook's shooting has been terrible all year. Um, he's really been struggling with it and he's been able to kind of make up with it, you know, with his other play. Um, he did make I a key think, three pointer in game three, but yeah. And he played, you know, he played really well in game three or he kind of forced the, you know, the thunder over the line there, but it just, it seems like everything's kind of catching up with him. Um, in a, in a playoff series where you see the same opponents over and over again, they kind of learn your tendencies. They kind of learn how to defend you. The, uh, trailblazers were really backing off of, um, Westbrook when he was behind the three-point line, kind of uh, encouraging him to shoot. I saw something where uh, Enos Cantor, the center for Portland, was picking up Westbrook, I think, in transition, and everyone on the Blazers bench was screaming at him to back up, back up, you know, kind of let him shoot, and he uh, rimmed it in and out a, a three that that missed. Um, so I just think, yeah, Westbrook's kind of, his season-long shooting struggles that he was able to sort of get by are catching up to him, and he just can't kind of cut it this series. Are you trying to analyze basketball here and we're trying to analyze <laughs> beef? So I mean, oh, let's bring it back to the beef. So Westbrook and Lillard, yes. I mean, they've been, the thing about this beef, I think that distinguishes it, distinguishes it from some of the other ones is that there are also signature moves involved. Dame time, you know, Lillard pointing mm-hmm. at his watch, Westbrook rocking the baby yeah. after he makes mm-hmm. a shot. I love yeah, using what? someone's move against them. That's, yeah. a, that's a classic beef move. Yeah. But this is so – here's the story of that. The the using the Dame time, pointing to the watch move, that was Dennis Schroeder in game three with like a minute left when the game was already kind of guaranteed, um, which is kind of like MB jumping into the Simmons-Dudley beef, sort of a piggybacking of the beef. <laughs> um, and I think with Westbrook and, and Lillard, it's tough because Lillard is a very calm – you know, level-headed dude, and Westbrook is very much the opposite. So in terms of, you know, styles make fights, that's kind of fascinating for this as beef. But when you watch it, especially when Lillard's, you know, outplaying Westbrook so much, it just looks like a sort of odd pantomime of of some sort of, uh, I don't know, like Buster Keaton gag where one person is sweating and huffing and puffing and getting nowhere and the other person is kind of calm and casually uh, – you know, hitting threes from 30 feet out and kind of torturing his defender. Classic. Costello, Buster Keaton. We're hitting all the yeah. classics on the Classic, yes. classic Buster Keaton hitting threes from, from 30 feet. Well, the thing that's so <laughs> disappointing about Westbrook and Lillard is that out of all of these beeves, it's the only one that's um, the, the players have, have equal billing and equal standing, uh, yeah. standing abilities, talents, whoever you want to, phrase that. I mean, Lillard's clearly the better player 
at this moment in time, but um, at its best in in game three, and you know, who knows, maybe the series will will turn in, in game five, although it looks unlikely at this moment. Have we said that Portland's ahead three games to one? Portland's ahead three games to one. Um, it just felt like it could be an on-court and off-court beef that would be settled with amazing, yeah. you know, shot making. But and that's just not going to happen. Unrequited beef. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Before we get to our conversation with Greg Wyshynski about the NHL playoffs, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Nick Green will be back with us and we will talk about a fourth NBA beef. This one also involves Russell Westbrook and it is Westbrook versus the press. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. The top seeds in both conferences in the National Hockey League have been ousted in the first round of the playoffs. It's the first time that's ever happened. Farewell, Calgary Flames and Tampa Bay Lightning. The Tampa one was especially shocking because A, the Lightning won an NHL record 62 games in the regular season. B, they got swept. And C, the team that swept them plays its home games in Columbus, Ohio, and is nicknamed the Blue Jackets. The possibility of a Columbus-Nashville Stanley Cup final is alive, and so is the possibility of a Columbus-Las Vegas final, and I say that because our friend Greg Wyshynski, who covers ice hockey for ESPN, joins us from Sin City, straight from the MGM Grand Hotel. He watched a double overtime game in Vegas last night. Good morning, Greg. Good morning. A quick anecdote. Uh, I was on the San Jose Las Vegas series since the beginning. And after game two in San Jose was prepared to uh, come to Las Vegas on my company's dime for uh, several days until the Tampa Bay Lightning went down 0-2 to Columbus. And my editor said, no, 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 Greg, you're not going to Las Vegas. You're going to Columbus, Ohio. Scramble the Jets. <laughs> Get Wyshynski to Columbus. All right, let's start with that. Uh, they got broomed out of the playoffs. I mean, it's playoff hockey, Greg. The puck bounces in funny ways. But Columbus outscored Tampa Bay 19-8. to Columbus won 15 fewer games in the regular season than Tampa Bay. What happened? Combination of factors. Um, one in particular that not enough people talk about is that Victor Hedman, who was just recently nominated for the Norris Trophy for the league's best defenseman, he won that award last season, was pretty banged up. Uh, he played the first two games very ineffective and did not play games three and four. 
arguably the best player on the Lightning, and they were without him, which is going to make it difficult to win any series. But the Columbus uh, four-checking system uh, put a real damper on the Lightning offensive system. They couldn't get anything going. The other big factor was special teams were the Lightning, who had the best power play in the regular season in the NHL since the 1988-89 campaign, uh, went one for six on the power play, while the Columbus Blue Jackets went five for ten against what was statistically the best penalty kill in the regular season. I think Ryan McDonough, their defenseman, on, on uh, the Lightning defenseman, said it best when he said, everything that we did great in the regular season, Columbus did better than us in this series. My favorite explanation for why Tampa Bay lost, it's like the classic explanation for when upsets happen in the playoffs. It's like uh, Tampa Bay was just too good. That was the, that was the problem. They were just too they were just too dominant in the regular season, and they, they just got challenges. They just got no too challenges. used to they just got too used to winning, and then yeah. when they started losing, they just got really sad. It's just, it's just all feels like ex post facto explanation for the inexplicable. Or do you think that there actually is something to the fact that they were just too good at hockey and that was their downfall? They never faced any adversity. Yeah, the adversity spin was dumb uh, because the the core. The core of this team was the same core that pretty much that uh, that you know lost in the conference finals to Pittsburgh and to Washington, blowing a game six and then blowing a game seven both times. So they've had they faced adversity this group, but the the uh, there's a sidebar to that that I think is valid and might explain also why uh, the Calgary Flames are no longer with us as well, which is that when you are a top seed and you've clinched. And you're in cruise control for, in the case of the Tampa Bay Lightning, since before uh, March, um, like they hadn't played a meaningful game in months. And then you face a team like Columbus did uh, Tampa Bay, like uh, Colorado did uh, Calgary, that's been playing playoff games basically for the last two and a half weeks of the regular season. I mean, Columbus won seven of eight games to make the playoffs and in each of those seven victories allowed two or fewer goals. So they were insanely good down the stretch. There is something to be said for teams not being able to flip the switch against teams that had been playing in playoff mode for several weeks. Uh, you wrote on ESPN uh, in a round table among hockey writers about who now is the favorite to win the Stanley cup. You said it's Columbus. Um, you said that, um, past 12 games, including the playoffs, since the Jackets cleared toxicity from their dressing room with a team meeting, they've been on this tear. You got to get toxicity out of the dressing room. MRSA is one reason to get toxicity out of the dressing room. <laughs> Another is apparently to do better at hockey. What, what, what was the toxicity and what did they do? Well, the one thing is that, that I learned from that team being around it, and this might come from their... Uh, uh, bloviating coach uh, John Tortorella as the source, there is a unique honesty behind the scenes. And and let me bring it to you this way. The Blue Jackets in, in, in two phases of this season have faced really weird circumstances involving their player personnel. The first is that when the season started, it was an open secret in the NHL that arguably their two best players, Artemi Panarin, uh, a great Russian forward uh, who's their leading scorer, and Sergei Bobrovsky, who is a uh, Vezina winning goaltender, open secret that they were both going to leave the team as unrestricted free agents this summer. 
so the team held a meeting earlier this year that cleared the air, according to all the players, on that issue. They're kind of clandestine about it, but the air was cleared. Then during this Western Canadian road trip, the team was struggling after going what was better described as all-in at the trade deadline. They kept Panarin. They kept Bobrovsky. They made a big trade for Matt Duchesne and Ryan Zingle from the Ottawa Senators, and they struggled. And apparently at this meeting uh, in Western Canada on this road trip, the air was cleared again of, of various and sundry uh, uh, issues. And ever since that point, the players said uh, they've been locked in on the same page and playing great hockey. I do think that they are a team that is built to win a cup. Uh, they've got two really good offensive lines. They have a foundational franchise defenseman in Seth Jones that every cup champion seems to have. And if Sergei Bobrovsky, who had been a punchline in the playoffs, has figured himself out as a playoff goalie, they they could ease, they could you know be a team that comes out of the East. My problem, and this is kind of ironic considering what we just talked about with Tampa, is this layoff might kill that momentum. <laughs> like they're going to be off for like a week before they have to play their next playoff round. And and that's a long time for a team that had been playing a playoff game every other day to be sitting around waiting to see who comes out of that Toronto-Boston series. They shouldn't have beaten Tampa so comprehensively. That was their, their Precisely. Mistake. My yep. favorite uh, moment in this series came after the series was over when the Tampa Bay Lightning Twitter account emoted the following. We don't have any words, and we know you don't want to hear them. We understand your anger, your frustration, your sadness. Everything you're feeling, we get it. This isn't the ending we imagined and certainly not the one we wanted. Thank you for being there the entire way. It's the, maybe the most emo moment in the history of sports, not just in, in hockey, but I do feel like it captures something about playoff hockey and the feeling that it makes no sense, that it's capricious, that why doesn't the lightning call me back? I thought we had something, <laughs> haven't answered my last 20 texts. What is going on? Like I do feel, you know, the the Twitter account of the team, you like to kind of capture the spirit the of the fan base and, and the emotions. And I feel like this was effective in that way, perhaps. I mean, more effective if you uh, set it to a Joy Division song. This is true. <laughs> but uh, but no, I think that it was an interesting statement. And, and one <laughs> interesting that's a way to put it. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and one that the fan base, I think some of them seem to really understand. And other ones were really kind of angry about it and wanted them to fire their coach. But um, listen, this is a supremely talented team there. Uh, they are locked in uh, with the foundation of, of players in their prime for years and years and years to come. And the thing about all playoff teams and, and speaking about the randomness of the playoffs and, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, the Washington Capitals last season are a beacon of light. They're the lighthouse. They're, they are the, yeah. they're the ones that you look at and say um, there was a real sense that this group was never going to win and, and especially was never going to get past their tormentors, the Pittsburgh Penguins. That happened. And then the Caps, you know, went on to win their first cup in franchise history, erasing uh, years and years and years of playoff futility and losing heartbreaking series. So every single time now that you have a situation like the Lightning, they're going to come back and say, look, we, it wasn't our time. That's what Nikita Kucherov, their uh, probable MVP, who uh, did a very non-MVP thing by getting suspended for Game 3 by uh, cheap-shotting a guy in Game 2. He said it best. He said, you know, it wasn't our time, which is kind of a stunning admission, but I think that's the mindset for these teams. 
Good transition there. Thank you, because I want to ask you about Alex Ovechkin of the Washington Capitals beating the shit out of Carolina Hurricanes, <laughs> 19-year-old rookie Andre Svechnikov in uh, a game earlier in that series. You know, you can do a forensic analysis of the fight. There have been some conflicting reports of who asked whom to go, um, whether it was Svechnikov after the two of them sort of were shoving back and forth, calling out Ovechkin to fight, or whether it happened the other way around. Um, it seemed both a bad idea for Svechnikov to take on Ovechkin. I mean, he idolized this guy, Russian on Russian, kid against adult. Um, but from I, I sort of like was a little sickened by Ovechkin agreeing to do this and beating the shit out of him. And I understand hockey and codes and, you know, the gloves are dropped, you got to go. Because of the age difference you were sickened by it? I just thought it was like Ovechkin should have just skated away rather than pummeling this kid that idolized him. It was a May-December fight. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, was, it was also a fight between a bull and a pigeon, too. I mean, yeah. Ovechkin, Ovechkin is yeah. a, a much larger gentleman than Shvestikov. Um, uh, first of all, this is the weirdest initiation, I think, to uh, Putin team the Vladimir Putin PR agency that uh, Ovechkin has run on his Instagram account. Uh, <laughs> so I don't quite know what's going on there. Uh, but I will say this about the fight. I think that the obsession by the Carolina Hurricanes uh, communications team and their coach as to uh, who asked uh, whom asked whom to fight is uh, a little unfair to Ovechkin. I mean, it almost makes it seem like they're pointing towards a guy taking liberties with a kid uh, versus, and a guy who, by the way, hasn't had a fight since 2010 um, versus this being a, a voluntary uh, bout between the two, which is the, the case. Um, the, the, the sadness, of course, is that Svechnikov lost the fight, banged his head on the ice, got concussed and missed a, a good portion of their series. Um, but, you know, these things happen. And, and in, in the case of Ovechkin, um, you know, he's continued to have a, a, a remarkably good postseason. And uh, and hopefully Svechnikov, I think, will return to the series or already has. Right. And I, I was talking about this with our producer, Patrick Ford, hockey referee, before the show. And he said, look, what we should be talking about is whether Svechnikov is getting rushed back from the concussion protocol. That's what really matters here. It does. And, and I have to imagine that they're taking good care. Look, the, the Hurricanes punched above their weight all season. They're one of the better stories of the league. They had made the playoffs I think uh, since before the Pixar movie Up was in theaters uh, was the last time that they made the playoffs in 2009. Is they that are, how you time uh, everything? Is no, time that is, too, yeah. Buddy, I, I wish I wish that I had you know, a different answer for you. Since but that's Barack exactly Obama's how I, inauguration, since yeah. Up debuted in theaters. Yeah, they, they made the playoffs somewhere between Last Crusade and Crystal Skull. No, listen, the, 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 it was a really fun year for them, but Sveshnikov is part of uh, a really, really bright future for this team as far as the prospects that they have. I, I don't imagine that they're going to do anything but take the proper care with this kid. He's a franchise-level player, a, a, a very high draft pick for them this year. Um, so you, you hope, at least, that they're being very careful with his recovery. I wanted to ask a question about Vegas, but first I just wanted to note how impressive – the level of tautology is and it wasn't our time. It's like, no shit, dude. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't <laughs> your time. You're just like s literally saying what happened. It's like we, we lost It's another way to say it, but it just sounds slightly more profound. Anyway, um, in Vegas, um, I, I do find it fascinating that in the NHL, every team in the playoffs 
can, based on recent history, say we have a really legitimate chance to win the Stanley Cup. It's obviously not true. And the NBA teams can say that, but you can't believe that that most of the teams in the NBA playoffs actually believe that it's true. But I'm curious how that manifests in Vegas, a franchise that, you know, made made the finals last year, probably going as an expansion team, probably going in. I don't. I don't know if they actually believed it. If any team didn't believe that they could make it, it was probably them. But now, how do expectations work for a team um, coming off of such like a crazy, um, you know, record-breaking, path-breaking performance? Do they feel the burden of that, or they seem all loosey-goosey still? I, I want to start by just talking about the franchise because um, I, I was discussing this with another writer at Game Six. When you're at a Vegas game, it, it really is one of the singular experiences in sports right now. I mean, the in-arena presentation, the fact that you have Lil John, Flava Flav, and Gordon Ramsay at a game, the fact that they're marrying people and renewing wedding vows with an Elvis impersonator outside the arena before the game. Like, it, it, there's nothing like this in sports right now, and I encourage any hockey fan to come to Vegas and see a game. However, as I said last night, I, I couldn't hate this franchise more. <laughs> it's like there is they've never they've never known the, 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 the pain and anguish of several years of the climb to get to where this team has been for the last two seasons. Now they might, depending on how this first round goes and this next round goes, if they make it through. But you know, as a Devils fan who grew up getting just absolutely curb stomped by the Rangers and their fans for the better part of a decade before the Devils were relevant. Uh, it, it, it's it's kind of stunning to think about this success, you know, coming to Vegas fans so early. That said, from a team perspective internally, yeah, there's a lot on the line here. They they got uh, aggressive in the off season. Um, arguably, the best line on the team right now was one that was put together since last season, with Max Pacioretty being acquired by a trade from Montreal, Paul Stasny signing a, signing a big free agent contract, and then Mark Stone being a huge trade deadline acquisition who they immediately signed to an eight-year contract. So there's a lot of money invested in it. Their owner, Bill Foley, wants to win, especially after the tease of last season. So even though it might seem like, hey, you know, the honeymoon in Vegas, the expansion team, what have you, the stakes are, are ridiculously high for this franchise internally. We didn't get to the New York Islanders. Go Islanders. There's going to be a Game 7 in the Vegas-San Jose series. It'll be in San Jose. Greg Wyshynski will be there covering it for ESPN. Greg, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Anytime, boys. Thanks for having me. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for amazing sports stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. In 2004, Ken Jennings won 74 straight games and more than $2.5 million in a record-annihilating run on the game show Jeopardy. Now comes James Holzhauer. He's got a long way to go to get to 74, but the professional sports gambler from Las Vegas, Nevada, as Alex Trebek might say, is Tiger in the 2000 U.S. Open, Secretariat at Belmont, 
Georgia Tech beating Cumberland 222 to nothing in 1916. After 12 wins, Holzhauer has racked up more than $850,000 in winnings, number two to Jennings, including the top single-day records mark of 131127 We're recording this on Monday. It's conceivable that the dude lost in game number 13, but it certainly doesn't look like that is in the offing, but you never know on Jeopardy. Sports Illustrated editor and writer Jack Dickey is here, not because he edits and writes for Sports Illustrated, but because last year he went on Jeopardy and won two games and $47,802. Welcome to the show, Jack. Hey, guys. You lost in game three because you didn't know Tommy Lee Jones was in The Fugitive. <laughs> this dude I... this dude seems to know everything. What's the difference between Jack Dickey and James Holzhauer? Well, okay, so he probably does know Tommy Lee Jones was in The Fugitive. Um, which Jack is, didn't even which know is... The Fugitive was a movie. I think you under, undersold did, it. I, I did. I did. I knew the fugitive was. It, I, it was not in my. It was not in my mind. I knew it was a TV show, but it. it I could not summon it with everything on the line. Um, so, so that's one difference. I think the the bigger difference is that he uh, took a sports gambler's approach to gameplay, uh, which has netted him all this money and just, you know, has these like incredibly lopsided totals heading into final jeopardy every night. Um, and that's something where like, I feel like most of us, no matter how much we know, no matter how much we love jeopardy, no matter how much we've studied the show, go on the show and try to play the way the show has always been played. And so for someone to come along and completely change the game. Um, it's it's admirable, but it, it takes more courage than anyone would have. <laughs> well, there are these strong kind of social and cultural norms around here's how you approach betting. Here's the order in which you, um, you know, play down the board. People have been making lots of different sports analogies. A piece we ran on Slate compared him to Serena Williams. But in uh, there's also been like a money ball comparison and his like kind of changing the approach. But what you just described makes me think of Steph Curry and like he's changing or like James Harden. It's like shooting like 33 pointers in a game. It's not caring how you're supposed to play. It's just playing in the mathematically optimal way. I didn't think of the show this way until I was through with it, but there are sort of two games going on. There's one that's you against your opponents. And there's one that's you against the game jeopardy. So normally you, I think when you're going into this, you spend all day uh, when you're there sort of in a, in a tiny uh, green room with these people and you sort of think like, Oh, let me focus on how to beat them. Not that there's much strategy you can uh, can optimize for any given opponent, but he's really focused on beating the game itself and doesn't really seem to care much about who he's playing against. And so I would say that's probably um, the biggest, the biggest uh, area in which that comes into play is with daily doubles, where normally your wagering strategy is dictated, dictated by uh, your opponent's scores. Um, 
people don't wager that much because you don't want to fall behind. You don't want to wind up losing all of the money you've built up already. He's just proven that if you know the answers and if you're on Jeopardy, you probably have a pretty good handle on what what the answers are. You should just wager almost all of your money. Right. And that's what he's been doing. And he's been nailing answers correctly at a Jennings-like rate. Um, and he's got a very quick finger on the buzzer, which is indispensable because, as you just pointed out, if, you're, if you've made it through all of the qualifying and interviewing to get on the show, the knowledge part is almost a given. Like, all of these people are really good at Jeopardy who get on to the show. Well, that's what everyone says, is that everyone knows all of the answers and it's just based on who can buzz in first. Um, but that being said, Jack, I mean, he's had some perfect games where he's gotten right. 40 right, 39 right. What to you is the most impressive thing as somebody who's played about the way that he plays or is able to play? So, so one of the things they tell you um, in the morning before you take is they say, you know, there are no rules beyond the rules everyone knows about how to play Jeopardy. But just as a rule of thumb, you should go in order, um, category by category, because it will orient you better. Uh, when you get to the harder clues. So sometimes there's a pattern. Um, sometimes if, even if they tell you the pattern, like if it's rhyme time or something, it will help to get the easier ones uh, leading into the harder ones, just so you, you're you familiar um, with with the rhythm of it. The way he plays in in single Jeopardy, right off the bat, he just goes for the $1,000 clues in each category, um, which are the hardest clues. And obviously he's coming into that particular category cold and he's switching from category to category. So you can't really get any, uh, you, there's no, there's no solid ground, um, you know, that you're, that you're building on top of. He's familiar with the game by that point because he's a multi-time champion. And so he is perfectly oriented, but the people he's playing with are the ones who aren't on solid ground. Yeah, I mean, he's not oriented in the sense that each category is is its own challenge. Um, but he absolutely the the reigning champ has an advantage in terms of buzzer timing or, or signaling device timing, um, and has an advantage just in terms of like TV specific nerves, like when you are a repeat champion the only the only drag is that you they tape five shows in a day they tape a whole week's worth of shows each day so you may be fatigued relative to to your competition but you certainly have have the advantage of knowing what you're doing i want to talk a little bit more about this guy and how he is sort of lab built to destroy Jeopardy. ESPN did a profile and talked to his gambling buddies and his trivia buddies and his fantasy football buddies. One dude is quoted as saying, right now, right now I'd say on his full keeper baseball team of the top hundred prospects, he has eight or nine of them. His team got older. He's rebuilding right now and his team is completely stocked up. So you've got like, he's a total fantasy sports nerd and he's built predictive models for baseball and football and college basketball. Can I interject and say my favorite thing about that? I think it was that story was that apparently he built his bankroll at the beginning of his pro uh, yes, gambling career by figuring out that 
odds makers had misallocated the odds for the 2006 World Baseball Classic. Uh, <laughs> yeah, people are betting on the World Baseball Classic, and he figured out the arbitrage to make a lot of money for that, to bankroll him. He, I think at one point he described himself as retired. So he's made a lot of money. Gambling is my bet. And now he's made a lot of money playing Jeopardy. Um, so this guy is sort of built for it, just like in every other mind sport that you see. It's Magnus Carlsen right now. He's an outlier. In the game I play, Scrabble, it's guys like... Uh, Nigel Richards, the guy that's won the North American Championship five times and the World Championship a bunch of times and decided to take up French Scrabble and memorize the entire dictionary in nine weeks and won that championship. I mean, there's that rare combination of prodigious memory, supreme recall, preternatural confidence, and a desire to sort of crush the game. I guess the way that Jeopardy could beat Holtzauer is by making the questions harder. And Jack, that's a thing that is kind of an interesting balance because Jeopardy is entertainment. It's a show that people like to watch to see great champions, but they also like to watch to try to, you know, play along. Um, And it seems like if the goal is to, um, you know, make a, a game that would be challenging to somebody like James Holtzauer, the questions would just have to be way harder. And the questions, it seems like, aren't hard enough for most of the people that are on the show. And it's really a test of the signaling device and and TV nerves. Um, do you think that that's a fair characterization? Yeah, absolutely. They They don't want people to get killed by the game. That's not that's not in their interest as TV producers. Um, they want the questions to be hard because there's a there's an expectation that that when people watch Jeopardy, they are immersing themselves for you know 22 minutes in uh, arts and literature and and geography and all these subjects they might not be encountering in their uh, otherwise humdrum lives, but they they don't want contestants to go and struggle. Uh, except for Wolf Blitzer. <laughs> except for Wolf Blitzer, who manages to to uh, struggle with the easiest questions on Celebrity Jeopardy. I wonder with Holtzauer, and it was in one of the stories, um, I think the Atlantic may have interviewed some uh, someone who worked in in game show production previously who said there's a line item for, for winnings for, for these shows. And it is almost certainly true that holds hour is obliterating whatever, uh, budget item they had, they had set for <laughs> this set of tapings. I don't know what, what their disposition is. I think they're probably the ratings boost cancels out whatever he's costing them. And they have insurance, but, no doubt, for outlier victories. For sure. But you you do wonder what will happen uh, if he if he goes on a streak that is Jennings-like, because Jennings' streak did cause them to, to change certain uh, parameters of, of contestant prep. And I think the way they selected contestants, too. The Atlantic piece actually was uncertain about whether they would have insurance because the amount of money that contestants typically win is within a very predictable range. Um, yeah. And he's just blowing that 
completely away. Because right, he's I winning, do, right? He's winning like an average of seventy thousand dollars a show, and previously or in Jennings' run, it was like half of that, right? Right. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I also wonder if they did make the questions harder, if it would actually be helpful to him. I guess it would be a test of really how knowledgeable he is, because it does seem like there's a universe in which somebody could come on this show, be better at trivia than Holtzauer, and just get completely run over um, in this world where everybody knows all of the questions. Um, so that would be an interesting test. I would like to see um, and I guess in the Tournament of Champions, the questions are, are more difficult. And Brad Rutter, a guy who was from the five times a champion and then you're out era of Jeopardy, has been demonstrated to be the best player ever. Like, I guess there will be opportunities for us to see Holtzauer against the best players. And we'll we'll see how how deep his knowledge is. Though, as Jennings has pointed out... He's 45 and not 29 now. He's not studying as much. He's not as as sharp. So he's like, I'm, I can't beat this guy at this stage in my life. Fatalism. I don't um, like it. <laughs> there's also been a lot of statistical analysis of Jeopardy history, of course. And Jennings' streak was kind of a fluke. Um, he got the right questions at the right moments and was also really good at playing it. And he's acknowledged that. Statistically, he's not that much. He's not a huge outlier in terms of percentages of of questions got right, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, Holzhauer's got to lose eventually. A couple of missed daily doubles, a missed final Jeopardy clue. This is more random in some ways than we might like to think, isn't it, Jack? Absolutely. And... I I think it was Friday night's show. Holtzauer missed the fir- when he was going through the thousand dollar questions. He missed the first one, and it was Trebek was startled to see him with a negative score, and he didn't appear that shaken because I'm sure he he knows this is a, a consequence of his strategy. But it does seem entirely possible that. He could get hit with a tough daily double or he just, you know, goes four for six on on those thousand dollar questions in in single jeopardy and just doesn't build up as much of a bankroll as as he's accustomed to building up. But his that said, his uh, his knowledge, the breadth of his knowledge is pretty impressive to me. I mean, that's. Jennings is my favorite player to watch because he really does seem to know everything about the nerdiest possible subjects. And then also, I mean, it's Jeopardy, so everything's nerdy, but but about the least nerdy subjects, uh, too. I mean, they and and Holtzauer, I sort of had had taken him for something of a nerd. And then they there's a two thousand dollar clue the other night about uh, an actress whose first movie role was in Hairspray. And he rang in with Ricky Lake, and I didn't know that. And I said, "Wow, okay, he's he's really something." <laughs> Ricky Lake is what did it for you. <laughs> I mean, what else could it have been? Jack Dickey went twenty and one in attempting to defend his two-time Jeopardy championship last year. Bring on Holtzauer! Seriously, Tournament of Champions. Call Jack Dickey now. Jack, thank you for coming on the show. And congratulations on winning $47,802 on Jeopardy. It's all right. 
Now it is time for After Balls, and I was trying to think of a Jeopardy-related thing or person to celebrate, and uh, I encountered the story of Eddie Tamanis, who was the first uh, fully blind person to win on Jeopardy, won five times, and Eddie Tamanis is a sports writer for USA Today. Wow. Did you know that, Stefan? No. Um, Yeah, he was a contestant. In October of 1999, um, they made some adjustments to the game to make it um, fair and equitable for him. He got the category names in Braille. They had no video-based clues, but otherwise the game was entirely the same. Um, and dude just rocked it, man. He, he dominated. Five is a lot in Jeopardy. Yeah, that was back in the day. Is that when back in the day when you had to stop after you had five? You stop after five. So for a week. He would still be winning every single game if yeah. they hadn't kicked him off unceremoniously. Yeah. Uh, all right, Stefan, what is your Eddie Tamanis? Last week, the New York Yankees announced that they would no longer play Kate Smith's 1939 recording of Irving Berlin's 1918 hit God Bless America during the seventh inning stretch, and the Philadelphia Flyers followed suit by ending a 50-year tradition of playing the song And they also covered up a statue of the dead singer outside their arena. Why? A fan told the Yankees that Smith sang some racist songs in the 1930s. Kate Smith was born in 1907 in the Jim Crow South. America was incredibly racist in the 1930s. And as Jody Rosen pointed out in an excellent Twitter thread over the weekend, pretty much all music and musicians from the early 20th century, including Irving Berlin, were touched by minstrelsy. So you can argue whether Kate Smith singing racist songs in the 1930s was racist or just a product of the times. A niece of Smith's told USA Today over the weekend that Smith really did not see color, which, okay, but boy, were these songs racist. Here's Smith singing That's Why Darkies Were Born in 1931. And here's a scene from the 1933 film Hello Everybody, in which Smith sang Pickaninny Heaven. And now, folks, I'm going to sing this next song for a lot of little colored children who are listening in at an orphanage in New York City. Here you are, kids. Little Pickaninny, listen to the tale of a place that I know. What happens there? Great big watermelons roll around and get in your way, and there's a Swanee River made of real lemonade. America. All right. Kate Smith's first appearance in connection with sports wasn't with the Philadelphia Flyers, but another Philly team. On July 20th, 1969, play was halted at four baseball stadiums when humans landed on the moon. In Philadelphia, UPI reported players on the Phillies and Cubs lined up on the foul lines, followed by a moment of silence in prayer for continued success of the mission and a recording of Smith singing God Bless America. That December, the Flyers played GBA after 
after the Canadian National Anthem instead of the SSB. The Philadelphia Daily News said the reason was a mystery and added that it sounded great, but it's still not our National Anthem. But the Flyers won, and they won again with the song a few days later. When Philly beat the Kings the next month, the Spectrum scoreboard flashed. Kate Smith now 3-0. and In February 1972, Flyers Vice President Lou Scheinfeld told the Philadelphia Inquirer that he started playing God Bless America because he had noticed that people were paying less and less attention to the national anthem. To a lot of people, it had no meaning. People talked, they bought pizza, they walked around, and hardly anybody sang along. Imagine that. So he played God Bless America instead. Some people complained, some people loved it, but the Flyers kept winning with it. Scheinfeld said at the time that the team went 4-0 with Smith in 69-70, 6-1-1, in 70-71 and was 8-0 so far in 71-72. So 18-1-1 to that point. The next season, he claimed that the team was 24-1-1 with Smith. This past Saturday in the Inquirer, Scheinfeld, who is now 82, blamed the PC police for shutting down Kate Smith. I played God Bless America only 21 times over the first three seasons solely for a key game, he wrote, and it worked like a charm. The Flyers won 19 of those games, tied one, and lost only once, a far cry from their dismal losing records in those days. But a hang-up-and-listen investigation reveals that Scheinfeld was wrong. For starters, those Flyers sucked. They didn't play any key games. More important, Kate Smith's record may have been exaggerated, unwillingly or not. On April 30th, 1970, the Flyers beat the Minnesota North Stars to run their record, according to the Inquirer, to 7-1 with Kate that season. The next day, they tied the Kings... Los Angeles Kings, and the paper said they were 7-1-1. Kate can't help, the paper reported, after the Penguins beat the Flyers later that month, dropping Kate's record, the Inquirer said, to 7-2-1. Two losses, not one, two. After that, the Flyers' God Bless America record is all over the map. In 1972, the Inquirer reported it first as 21-3-1, then as 22-2-1, and finally as 24-1-1. The Flyers kept getting retroactively better with Kate Smith. They definitely lost another Smith game in the playoffs in April 1973, and at this point, who knows what the real record was, but Smith had gone viral. On opening night of the 73-74 season, Smith appeared live at the Spectrum for the first time because the Flyers had earlier rejected her appearance fee demands. Flyers skate the Daily News wrote in a headline after one win, the Broad Street Bullies made an unexpected run through the playoffs. And on the morning of game six of the finals against the Boston Bruins with Philly up three games to two, the Inquirer played a story about Smith on page one. She sang the song live on the ice that night. Kate Smith stayed the whole game. The Flyers won one to nothing and hoisted the Stanley Cup. Boston coach Armand Bepp Guidolin said, that fucking song, that fucking carpet, that fucking organ, they turned this thing into a fucking circus. I'm assuming, Josh, that he said fucking. It was printed in the Daily News as bleep. Guidolin went on to rip Kate Smith. This is 1974, not 1924. 
Fans rioted, standing on top of trucks, cars, and charter buses, the Inquirer reported. They alternately sang God Bless America and chanted such things as one, two, three, four, who the hell is Bobby Orr? The same story later said that frequent, often drunken renditions of God Bless America were heard. That Inquirer article was headlined streakers, drinkers, singers, and was illustrated with a photo of two naked dudes running through Center City. The Flyers claimed they were 101, 31, and 5 with Smith's God Bless America. I say don't trust the numbers. Definitely a couple early losses weren't counted. And anyway, it seems like once it got going, the Flyers padded the Smith record by playing God Bless America before games against shitty teams. Also, Kate Smith or no Kate Smith, playing God Bless America and the Star Spangled Banner at sports events is jingoistic nonsense that has nothing to do with games and should stop. Josh, what's your Eddie Tamanis? I cannot palm a basketball. That is my Eddie Tamanis. Uh, I don't feel that bad about it because back in 2014, Kevin Durant admitted that he too cannot palm the ball, which means we are basically the same when it comes to basketball. When Durant made his confession, there was some speculation that maybe he could actually palm the ball. People were not willing to believe it. But Darnell Mayberry, who was then an Oklahoma uh, City Thunder beat writer, this was when Durant played for OKC, wrote about watching Durant at a scrimmage. Durant stood in line trying to palm the ball, and it kept slipping. So it does appear that he struggles to palm it, at least for long periods. The stars, they're just like us. I was curious about the history of palming the basketball, and I discovered that there is a guy who is credited as the first to be able to do it. His name was George Horse Haggerty. He was born in 1891 in Springfield, Mass. Wait, wait, wait. Is Horse his middle name, or is that his nickname? That is his nickname. Okay. Uh, he was born in Springfield, Mass, where basketball was invented, so he had a little bit of a home court advantage. Haggerty was a member of the most successful and famous team in the early days of pro basketball, the New York original Celtics, which Haggerty joined in 1920. Haggerty was a big dude for his day. He was 6'4", 230, and was known as a great rebounder and shot blocker. According to the book Basketball, a Biographical Dictionary, Haggerty, quote, once knocked out a spectator who had insulted a teammate and another time floored a referee who he had thought was favoring his opponent, to which I say, fair enough. Haggerty was known as a fan favorite for obvious reasons. His 1961 obit in the Washington Post said that he was to basketball what Babe Ruth was to baseball, which seems like an enormous exaggeration, but just go for it, WAPO. Do your thing. Uh, But Stefan, do you know who Horace Haggerty's biggest fan was? Hold on. Babe Ruth. (laughs) The one and only Muhammad Ali hating New York Times sports columnist Arthur Daly. In a 1943 column, Daly talked to Haggerty's old teammate, Nat Holman, who said that the horse was the most colorful basketball player of them all. The horse would think nothing of bringing sneezing powder on the court with him and casually tossing some of it at a man about to shoot a foul. The Celtics. Oh my God, Patrick Beverly should do that. (laughs) The Celtics didn't need any such help to win. It was just Haggerty's way of amusing himself. Kevin Durant would explode if Patrick Beverly threw some sneezing powder at him. Ready for another horse anecdote? Uh, The good natured giant was a terror with the officials. Once, when a second personal foul was assessed against him, unjustly, he thought, Haggerty bellowed, call another like that and I'll hit you on the chin. A few moments later, The referee walked over to Haggerty and said, another foul on you, and here's my chin. The horse could not resist the temptation of the proffered jaw. He let him have it. 
What a lovable scamp. Um, the Pro Basketball Encyclopedia notes that in 1923, Haggerty became the player coach of the Fort Wayne Knights of Columbus. He tore a tendon in his ankle. Wait, wait, wait. They were the Fort Wayne Knights of Columbus. Correct. Okay. I mean, my intonation was a little bit off. But yes, Fort Wayne Knights of Columbus. Uh, he tore a tendon in his ankle. He uh, had ankle problems for the rest of his career. He then became a bricklayer and a business agent for the Bricklayers Union. In 1959, he was elected to the Basketball Hall of Fame as a member of the original Celtics. So that is the Horse Haggerty story. But in the course of researching this, I found an article that claimed that the second person to Palma basketball after Horse Haggerty was a guy named uh, Charles Gilliam. His nickname was Horse, which leads me to wonder, horses do not have opposable thumbs. They don't really have, they have hooves. Not good at basketball. Not good at, I have a lot of questions about why someone named Horse would have specific palming skills. Or maybe this guy was just named after the guy because he could palm a basketball. Or maybe big guys were just nicknamed horse. Perhaps. A topic for further study. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you are still here, want to entice you to subscribe to uh, the Slate Plus membership program. I will entice you by noting that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk to Nick Green, our friend, our basketball correspondent, about the notorious Russell Westbrook, Barry Trammell, beef to end all beefs. Travel's just got a job to do. I mean, that's kind of like the canned line that you could give in this situation. But it's true. He has to go ask players questions after the games. And if they're not going to answer it, he can't not ask questions anymore. He's got to kind of keep doing it. Uh, if you'd like to hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. Sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty. And thanks for listening. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. 
It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.